This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Jane Pauley, and beginning today, I'll have the privilege of starting the week with you here on Sunday morning. As you can see, we haven't changed much. But if you're thinking about your old friend Charles Osgood, well, I am too. Just like Charlie was probably thinking of Charles Kuralt 22 years ago. Neither Charles nor Charlie would have made a big deal of it, and neither will I, but I'm excited and grateful. Thank you for sharing this really big day with me. And we have much to tell you. Hurricane Matthew has been hammering the southeast coast this autumn weekend. Mark Strassman will have the latest. And then there's the storm of controversy over that Donald Trump tape. Major Garrett tells us about that. But there's still room for a medical mystery. Pills that seem to cure even though they contain no cure whatsoever. Call it the placebo effect. Susan Spencer will report our cover story. Linda Bonanno has had chronic pain for two decades, and only one pill ever has given her relief, a placebo. That's right, her go-to medication is no medication at all. To tell you the truth, I would rather take a placebo than a medication, because a lot of these medications have side effects that are worse than the condition that you have. The power of nothing, later on Sunday morning. All rise. It's the traditional instruction when a judge enters the courtroom, a tradition we observed when we visited a Supreme Court justice with a great deal to say. 
your image on the $10 bill. What a good idea. (laughs) This morning, we rise for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice, as you've never seen her before. I want to pull it out. Mm -hmm. In the kitchen and in her chambers. This is a picture of a woman in ecstasy. He's singing. Placido Domingo and I are both getting honorary degrees. The nation's oldest sitting justice talks of life, Mm -hmm. loss, and retirement ahead. Justice Scalia and I... Connor Knighton is on the trail to yet another national park this morning and on the case of an enigmatic log. At Crater Lake National Park in Oregon, there's a log that's been implausibly floating upright for more than 120 years. Say hello to the old man of the lake. The old man captures the hearts and imagination of visitors young and old. A mystery that's got everyone stumped later on Sunday morning. In any list of the legends of popular music, you'll find the name Celine Dion. Though she's found great success in Las Vegas, she hasn't forgotten her roots in Quebec, as our Morocco found out. Superstar Celine Dion seriously loves to sing. But she doesn't take herself too seriously. Whoa, 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 she's amazing. Sorry. Ahead on Sunday morning, superstar Celine Dion. We're eating poutine. Mm. Thank you so much. It's French-Canadian junk food. So good. That is really good. Morning, afternoon. Lee Cowan has some questions for actor Nick Nolte. Seth Doan tells us all about bonsai, small wonders from Japan. Steve Hartman will introduce us to a young Afghan man who's tooting his own horn and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. As you know, Matthew's winds have been socking the Carolinas after a glancing blow to the coast of Florida and Georgia. Mark Strassman, with some help from our CBS News colleagues, has the story of a hurricane that's now history. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Jane. Here in North Charleston, South Carolina, downed trees and power lines have made many roads impassable. North Carolina has it even worse. Up to 14 inches of rain has created record flooding and caused at least three deaths. Four other people are missing. But across much of the southeast, there is also a sense of relief that this storm could have been much worse. Evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. Given Matthew's devastation in the Caribbean last week, Florida Governor Rick Scott assumed the worst. Evacuate. This storm will kill you. By Friday, the huge storm was brushing up against St. Augustine, weakening but still powerful. The water on this street is several feet deep and still rising. Before moving north to Jacksonville. This is the storm surge everyone fears. Friday night, Matthew crosses from Florida into Georgia. Many communities like this one in southern Georgia had storm damage, but nowhere near the catastrophe forecasters had predicted. That's because the eye of the storm jogged east, stayed offshore until it reached South Carolina, where Charleston was at risk. As the sun is coming up, Matthew is coming to town. Death toll aside, this has been a damaging storm. More than two million people have lost power. Gas lines and shortages will continue into the week. Rebuilding will be expensive. By one estimate, damage in the U.S. could reach $6 billion. Still, Matthew's most lethal landfall was in Haiti. The storm flattened entire villages. At least 800 people were killed. Matthew is now headed eastward back out into the Atlantic, where it's expected to dissipate. Ahead, placebos. Just what the doctor ordered? How real is the placebo effect? Can a pill actually cure what ails you, even if that pill contains no medicine at all? Our cover story is reported by Susan Spencer. Hey, ready for the big meeting? Yeah. Uh, hello. 
a meeting? It's a big one. Yeah, too bad we're double booked. Diarrhea and abdominal pain. You may know it from those mildly embarrassing TV ads. When my IBS flares up, it's a sharp pain like a punch to my stomach. But Linda Bonanno knows it from daily life. She has struggled with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, for two decades. It's horrible. Sometimes I could be fast asleep and wake up out of a dead sleep at 6 in the morning and just keel over in pain. Desperate for relief, she immediately signed up for a study at Boston's Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I made an appointment and I went down there. She came home with fingers crossed and a three-week supply of pills. The results seemed miraculous. As the days went on after a week, I kept feeling better and better. Now I'm thinking, what's in this? So what was the special something in those pills? It was, drum roll, absolutely nothing. Linda was taking placebos like these with no real medication in them at all. What makes her story even more astonishing? Linda was told she was taking placebos. I, I remember the first day I took it, I said, why am I even taking this? You know, it's like a waste of my time. But I when I saw that I felt better, I'm thinking, well, maybe he just told me it was a placebo. And it's a new medication they're trying out and didn't want me to know. Ted Kapchuk, a professor at Harvard Medical School, ran the experiment. What did your colleagues initially think? Oh, everyone thought I was crazy at the beginning of it. <laughs> but it worked. He says roughly 60% of the subjects in his study reported getting better, even though they knew they were taking a placebo. A placebo is an inert substance, usually something like cellulose, starch, sugar. Placebo effect is actually everything that surrounds that pill. The interaction between patient, doctor, and nurse, it's the symbols, it's the rituals. Those are powerful forces. Doctors have understood the power of placebos, at least since they were used in clinical trials in the 50s. But fake pills work only in certain cases. There are a lot of illnesses you don't give placebos for, like cancer, lowering cholesterol. Basically, the scope where a placebo effect is relevant is any symptom that the brain can modulate by itself. In those cases, just making an appointment, going to a doctor, and taking a pill suggests something may happen. About 35% of the time, people will report some symptomatic relief mm -hmm. from taking a substance that is not biologically active. That's quite a people bit. Will, yeah, it's very impressive. Dr. Arthur Barsky is a psychiatrist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He says people even report side effects from placebos. Clearly, we are highly suggestible creatures. And there's some studies with, for example, with asthma. You can provoke an asthmatic attack mm -hmm. by showing someone a pollen that they're allergic to, but it's in a sealed jar. I had a patient who had allergic dermatitis to cats, and she saw a cat on a television set, on a screen television program, and started to itch. Aware of the power of the mind, as many as half of all American doctors admit to having prescribed some form of placebo, according to a 2008 study. There are a lot of things that we do that aren't directly curative that make a difference. We Prescribing vitamin pills, iron pills, coal packs, heat packs, giving antibiotics for a viral infection mm -hmm. because the patient really wants it. And it's not just that the patient imagines feeling better. The people who responded to placebo treatment who were in pain, we actually see part of the pain matrix being activated that would change the sensation of pain. Just the act of taking a pill, even a fake one, can coax the brain into producing its own helpful chemicals. In fact, we know that giving the pill in the context of a healthcare encounter activates neurotransmitters, Something chemically is happening. That's amazing to me. It's really amazing to me, and I've been in this business a long time. <laughs> I know that the phenomenon of my patients changing by virtue of nothing else than their expectations is real. Neurologist Alberto Espe at the University of Cincinnati specializes in Parkinson's disease. Drugs used in Parkinson's help the brain make dopamine. Turns out, placebos do, too. And this can be measured objectively, measurable changes within the brain. Very much so. 
Depression comes with Parkinson's, and you can really sink pretty fast if you let yourself. Bob Walton has lived with Parkinson's for more than a decade. Dr. Espe enrolled him in a study supposedly comparing an expensive drug to a cheaper one. But I actually felt a little better after I got the expensive one. Well, guess what? He did, he did an interview with me at about an hour and a half after it was over with, and he said they were both saline solutions. These were both placebos. Both were placebos. And, of course, there was no price difference at all. And so we have twice as much improvement if I think it cost a lot. Exactly. Not only did the supposedly expensive drug do twice the job, it did just as well as a real Parkinson's drug. So they thought that because it was expensive, it has to be good. Correct. And that alone can affect things physiologically. It does. The lesson here, says Dr. Espe, when patients believe in their medications, those medications just may work better. Now, to do your experiment, you had to mislead people. I did. How did you feel about that? Terrible. In fact, outside of clinical trials like Dr. Espe's, the American Medical Association frowns on deception in treating patients. Patients cannot be given a placebo without informed consent and told clearly, transparently what it is. Mm -hmm. But given Linda Bonanno's success with placebos for her IBS, it may not matter if patients know, which raises an interesting question. I think the next step is, how do we concretely use placebo effects in clinical practice? There are some ways in which we might be able to uh, not deceive the patient, but still get the benefit. You tell the patient, we're going to give you the active medicine, but on some days you're going to get a placebo. And if that were to work, you would then lessen the chance of addiction, tolerance. It's cheaper. Meanwhile, Linda's symptoms are back full force. But she has an appointment with Professor Kapchuk. And I'm possibly going to go on placebos again and see what happens. And it I, seems so strange to hear somebody say, I'm going on placebos. I know. It's like know. saying, I'm, I'm about to start taking nothing again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm really excited. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Coming up, small wonders. You learn how to water for five years as an apprentice, and then you keep learning how to water until you die. <laughs> Whoa. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is a bonsai tree from the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's 66 years old, a relative youngster by the standards of these small wonders. Seth Doan has sent us a postcard from Japan. They can grow for centuries and are designed to evoke the majesty of nature. But it's all in miniature and is anything but natural. We're trying to make this thing look like a real tree. Pittsburgh native Adam Jones came to Japan to master the art of bonsai. How much design is there to this? With bonsai, we're controlling everything. We have the the tree in a pot. So we're controlling the soil, how much water it gets, how much sun, how much fertilizer, how it grows, where it grows, the, the branches that we want to keep, the branches that we want to cut. Every leaf on every branch is considered. Just learning to water them correctly is intense. Jones is four years into his apprenticeship at the prestigious Manseian nursery on the outskirts of Tokyo. The saying is that you, you learn how to water for five years as an apprentice and then you keep learning how to water until you die. <laughs> Whoa. The roots of this art form stretch back at least 1,300 years to China. But it's Japan doing this for a mere 700 that developed the style and set the bar for what is considered bonsai today. The trees can be so meticulously groomed, they're best appreciated indoors or even in a museum. This can only stay inside the museum for about a week. One week, yes. Why would you Rumiko Ishida is the curator of the Omiya Bonsai Art Museum. They needed to get the sunlight. So you'll turn the bonsai yes. depending on where the sun is. Yes. I think this is a living art. Her exhibits cannot be indoors too long because they'll die. Can any tree be a bonsai? Yes, of course. I heard in Italy uh, some of them enjoyed the olive 
bonsai. An olive bonsai tree. Yes. So what then makes a bonsai a bonsai if it can be any type of tree? Bonsai meaning a tree in a pot. So any trees in a pot is bonsai. And those pots, even by bonsai standards, can be quite small. One, two, three. To be mame, or mini bonsai, three have to fit into the palm of a hand. Asami Ono showed us a tree she'd been nurturing for seven years. I've pruned it constantly, she explained. It's in the tiniest pot to keep it from growing. She's not kidding. Later, she potted one for us in something that would make a thimble look big. Trimming the roots and repotting regularly is part of the science, Adam Jones explained. To some extent, when we think about bonsai, we think, oh, these are tortured trees, right? They're wired and contorted and, and beat up. But in fact, uh, a good analogy would be racehorses, right? We want to pamper these things. We want them to be in the best condition they can possibly be in. And when it's done just right, these trees can be considered luxury items, which Jones likened to a Ferrari or Rolex. Or as we saw at another nursery, Seikoen, they can cost as much as a house. Wow, hundreds of thousands of dollars for this tree. The bonsai in this class for relative beginners may never sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. But student Teruko Otsuka sees greatness in her little tree. I'm trying to create something that evokes the image of being in the forest, this housewife told us. When the leaves sprout, you'll have that sensation. Now, if you can see here. While wiring some tiny branches, Jones argued bonsai is worth the investment, considering they can take generations to design. The Japanese aesthetics of bonsai are considered the most refined the most subtle, the most sophisticated. He called it a dialogue with the tree. It's a conversation that has been going on here for centuries. Still to come, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg holds court. I think diversity is a desirable thing, but should not eclipse getting the best person the president thinks to do the job. And later, I've struggled with everything most of my life. The good times and bad times of actor Nick Nolte. All rise are the words we hear in court when the judge takes the bench. Now, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is speaking out in her own words in a new book from CBS's Simon & Schuster. I had a few words of my own with Justice Ginsburg, beginning in front of the closet in her chambers. You saw my collection of collars? That is beautiful. You're really pushing the boundaries. Yes. This is my dissenting collar. Why? It's black and grim. But it sparkles, too, so it gets attention. In fashion, that's known as a statement piece. Ruth Bader Ginsburg yes. is diminutive, but looms large as a powerful liberal voice on the United States Supreme Court, People appointed by Bill Clinton in 1993. This nominee is a person of immense character. At 83, Ginsburg is now the oldest sitting justice, known among fans, including the president, as the notorious RBG. And along with Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, one of three women on the bench, which strikes her as not nearly enough. People ask me, when would you be satisfied with the number of women on the court? When there are nine. For most of the country's history, they were all white men. In fact, the Supreme Court was a men's club for 192 years, until Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981. The pinnacle of a law career, you have achieved it. But I don't think it was by dint of luck. What is this, this song from My Fair Lady? A little bit of luck. I had more than a little bit of luck. My Own Words is her first book as a Supreme Court justice. She takes us through a life of achievement and loss. Two days before Ginsburg graduated in 1950, valedictorian from James Madison High School in Brooklyn, her mother Celia died. That was taken 
1946. She had cancer, and it lingered for many years. Her mother's influence has been enduring. She said two things, be a lady, um, be independent. Be a lady meant don't give way to emotions that sap your energy, like anger. Take a deep breath and speak calmly. Whether it's on camera or not, okay. I want you to see the portrait of Marty. This is typical Marty. Why do you say typical Marty? Because he's relaxed, he's reading a good book, he is underdressed. She met Martin Ginsburg on a blind date at Cornell, graduated and married in 1954, had her first child in 55, and entered law school in 56. After two years at Harvard, Ginsburg transferred to Columbia and graduated first in her class. Tied for first. We'll call that first. But she didn't get a single offer from a New York law firm. I had three strikes against me. One, I was Jewish. Two, I was a woman, but the killer was I was the mother of a four-year-old child. You graduated first in your class. Didn't that say something about your ability to be both a mother and the best? It should have. And later, she'd have a son, James. But what if, what if you'd had that career? You and I wouldn't be talking today. You're exactly right. And my dear colleague, Sandra Day O'Connor, put that very well. She said, if Ruth and I came of age at a time when there was no discrimination against women, we would be retired partners in a major law firm. Instead, Ginsburg became a law professor at Rutgers University, groundbreaking in the 1960s. In the early 70s, she wrote the first Supreme Court brief on gender discrimination. I called 1972 the year of the woman. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortion. But ask her today about that historic Roe v. Wade decision, and you might be surprised. Better to go step by step and have a series of decisions rather than have one decision that made every law of every state, even the most liberal, unconstitutional. Too giant a stride. There are many people who disagree with me who say that the backlash would have occurred in any event, and we will never know. You've lived here since... Since 1980. 1980. Here's something you'll rarely see, a Supreme Court justice at home. I'm not surprised to find in, in your apartment shelves and shelves and shelves of books. You would expect that. Maybe what you wouldn't expect are the shelves and shelves of cookbooks. A tax law expert and gourmet chef, Martin Ginsburg, who died in 2010, collected scores of cookbooks. She had only one. I had a book called The 60-Minute Chef. You start it the minute you walk through the door, it would be on the table within 60 minutes. I had seven things that I made. We went in rotation. When I got to number seven, we went back to number one. That is until her daughter Jane suggested she retire from the kitchen. It came to her that daddy's cooking was ever so much better than mother's. Why shouldn't daddy cook every day? Why Your feelings weren't hurt. Not in, in the, the least. least. <laughs> Not in the least. Having phased me out of the kitchen, she feels responsibility to make sure I'm properly fed. Today, her daughter Jane does the cooking. If I pulled it out, you'd see it's filled with individual dinners. Once a month, the Columbia law professor... I want to pull it out. Mm -hmm. ...fills her mother's freezer. So, and she's got each one labeled. This is rockfish rock fish? with lemon... And this one? ...shrimp and squid with saffron tomato sauce. You eat well. She has had health issues. In 1999, she battled colorectal cancer, then pancreatic cancer a decade later. She never missed a day on the bench. Justice O'Connor has set the model. She was on the bench nine days after her surgery. She said, now, Ruth, have your chemotherapy on a Friday. That way you have the weekend to get over it. And get this, Ginsburg does 20 push-ups a day. You do? Marine push-ups. There's something that's harder for me than push-up, and my trainer calls it the plank. You're on your stomach. I do it for 30 seconds, and then breathe, and then another 30 seconds. She might enjoy wine with dinner, 
which she says is why she was caught dozing during last year's State of the Union address. How much sleep do you get? That depends on the season. I get very little sleep when the court is sitting. I stay up as long as is necessary for me to feel comfortable that I have a solid grasp on the case. So I can get by to not more than four hours. She's famously oh, a workaholic and says she court loves the court. Today. Most collegial place I've ever worked. I think we understand that for the court to work well, we have to not only respect, but genuinely like each other. And I think but this summer, this she overstepped character. her own sense of judicial propriety when she called Donald Trump, among other things, a faker. When asked about a Trump presidency, she said, for the court, it could be, I don't even want to contemplate that. Trump tweeted a response. Justice Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court has embarrassed all by making very dumb political statements about me. Her mind is shot. Resign. Ginsburg subsequently issued a statement regretting her ill-advised remarks. And that's where she'd like to leave I it. Judges should, should not talk about political candidates. And the press has blown this up out of all proportion. So I would prefer not to add anything to what I have already said. Earlier this year, the court lost one of its most conservative voices, the brilliant and bombastic Antonin Scalia. And Ginsburg lost one of her closest friends. Even when we were on opposite sides, he might call me and say, Ruth, I'm not with you, but wouldn't this be a better word than the one that I had? He would help you strengthen yeah. your own argument. And I, I did the same thing with him. The best of buddies, they traveled and celebrated New Year's Eve together. We are different. And their mutual passion for the opera inspired an opera written about them. Last Monday, the first Monday in October, court was back in session. Though many of her most ardent admirers may argue it's time to step down. I don't think that a justice should have uppermost in her mind. A Democratic president appointed me, so I must leave to be sure that another Democratic president can appoint my successor. I will do this job as long as I feel that I can do it full steam. At my age, you have to take it year by year. So this year, I know I'm fine. What will be next year or the next year, I can't predict. Ahead. Are you going to play with us tonight? Yes, he's very good. I got a good dress for you. I'm volunteering for backup dancer. Oh. <laughs> Moraka drops in on Celine Dion. You better believe in your heart. Good morning. It's a new day. Monday. It happens this coming week. There is a welcome new addition to this set. Tuesday, October 11th, to be precise. The 40th anniversary of the day a young woman took her place as co-anchor of the Today Show. I am 25 years old today, and some people say that is simply not old enough. Well, I'm inclined to think that it makes precious little difference how old I am. But at any rate, there's nothing I can do about it but anticipate my 26th birthday upcoming in two weeks. Who was that young woman? Oh, wait, that was me. A long, long way from my home in Indiana. I was born on Halloween. My father was a salesman. My mother was the organist at church. After high school and college, I landed my first job on local TV. The very picture of a young reporter. Emphasis on young. The surest way to cut the high cost of eating is to eat less. From there, it was on to the Today Show, my home for 13 years. And then on to NBC's news magazine, Dateline. Two years to convert it. Among other ventures. Along the way, I married. As some of you might know, he's the man behind Doonesbury, Gary Trudeau. We raised three children, and now I'm a grandmother. As I've described in my two books, there have been plenty of ups, but I've had my share of downs as well. All of which I say by way of introduction. It's been almost 40 years to the day since I began my first morning TV venture that I'm starting over again, a little bit older, 
a little bit wiser, I hope, and very proud to be following in Charles Osgood's footsteps. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your homes. It's good to be here. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now, do you hear me, Stars? I want you to attack. I want you to attack right now with every man at your disposal. Now attack, Stars. That's a direct order. Nick Nolte played a tough-talking lieutenant colonel in the 1998 film The Thin Red Line. These days, he's playing a tough-talking former president while also finding time for some questions and answers with our Lee Cowan. Here we go. Okay, this is all gas right now. And then we had oxygen. For all the things his fans have been curious about over the years, Nick Nolte says we were the first to ask about this. What you're working with is molten glass. His glass-working hobby. How long have you been doing this? Well, I got hooked on it right away. I thought, geez, what a way to calm down, you know? He's been doing it for some 30 years, making beauty out of fire. All right, so let's get that down. Which, in a way, is a lot like his own life. He's had colorful moments, he's had a few meltdowns. But despite his rough exterior, Nick Nolte can seem pretty fragile, too. You don't really look at acting as a career. It's something that you, you need to do. Yeah. Even now. Even now at 75, you still feel the need? Yeah, it's a need in the sense I can't find anything as complex and interesting to do. But I need it in a story. I don't want to do reality. Because reality never runs smooth. Nikolikov! Mr. Nolte! So he says he keeps reality at a distance all while keeping his craft close. Well, look, I feel things, so I do them. That's just the way I am. There's an emotional intensity to much of his work, whether it's opposite Jacqueline Bissett. What if I'd done the same thing to your son? Or his Oscar-nominated turn with Barbara Streisand. Why would she do that? What are you all hiding? I don't answer any more questions till you answer mine. And I find you guilty, counselor. He can hold his own with Robert De Niro. Or with Eddie Murphy. You ain't got no class, Jack. Class isn't something you buy. Look at you, you got a $500 suit on, you're still a low life. Yeah, but I look good. For someone who doesn't like reality, his performances are often so real, they can be hard to watch. <coughs> That's what you have to decide. Am I going to take the audience into life? into what really life is, or am I just going to stay on the fringes? So when Epics TV began the search for an actor who could play a volatile, hard-drinking former U.S. president... How are you, President Graves? Pain, Ramona, nothing but pain. That's good. Nolte won the role in a landslide. The concept is so beautiful. It's about a man that was president 25 years ago. He's been in retirement for 25 years. You're not firing your Secret Service detail. The hell I'm not. I just did. Graves is the story of a political epiphany, a man who sets out to right his administration's past wrongs in often unpredictable and very public ways. I will be your biggest advocate. You're beacon of hope. You're goddamn president. You seem like you're always at your best when you're playing somebody that has got some wrongs to right or some mm. road to recovery that you've got to find. And that's yeah. what this role is, right? Well, that is what this role is. But this is about the sin we all carry. Which is? Which is? What we were born with, being human. You know? Fallible. Yeah, fallible. That's, that's what the affliction is. Nolte knows a little something about fallibility. His Midwest childhood was restless, 
Born in Omaha, he never found school much to his liking. Sports made the most sense, especially football. You played at a whole bunch of different colleges, right? Mm -hmm. How come you went to so many? Because I wanted to play football. My only objective to go to college was to play football. He drifted around, selling fake draft cards for a while, until he was arrested for it in 1961. It wasn't a political statement, he says. It was just a way for underage kids to get into bars. I buy them for $4, $5, and then sell them for 25 But it was a federal offense. Although it ended in a suspended sentence, the experience so affected him, Nolte used it as the backstory for his homeless character. What happened to you? In the film Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Sold some draft cards. They nailed me for counterfeit government documents. They gave me 45 years and a $75,000 fine. Acting was Nolte's way of dealing with reality, a coping mechanism. He started small, doing regional theater in places like Minnesota and Arizona. He moved to Hollywood and was 35 before he got his first big break on the TV miniseries Rich Man, Poor Man. Where have you been anyway? I wouldn't want to destroy your illusions. Oh, I don't have any. Not about you. Oh, you wound me, brother, because I've always hero worshipped you. His blue eyes and blonde hair helped land him a Clairol ad. And by the 90s, Nolte was named the sexiest man alive by People magazine. But all that fame, he said, was just another thing he had to cope with. And it turned out he didn't handle it all that well. You know, there's a moment of fame, of recognition, and then it's over. Now, if you carry that on, then you're trying to stay high. And in the old days, we would get things that would make us high to try to duplicate that feeling. You'd said you'd struggled with drugs and alcohol pretty much most of your life, right? Yeah, but I've struggled with everything most of my life. Did you have to get help? Once. It was after one now infamous night back in 2002. He had been taking the drug GHB, the so-called date rape drug. Nolte says he was using it to bulk up, but it's also a powerful tranquilizer. Oh, it's lucky to be here. You could have been killed, or you could have killed someone else. Yeah, I could have killed somebody else. That would be the tragedy. He pled no contest, entered rehab. So, so how long have you lived here? About 40 years. 40 years. And eventually yeah. returned to his life in Malibu. Oh, my God. Yeah. How old is he? Oh, he's ancient. <laughs> he well, lives here in uh, relative peace with his longtime companion, Clyde Lane, and their nine-year-old daughter. And he still goes out to that glass-blowing studio almost every day. So I'm going to do this quick, I think. It's one escape from the demons that still haunt him. But the best way to keep them at bay, he says, has been to vanish into a role. If the story reaches up to where the great actor is, the great actor disappears. And the story becomes number one. And the audiences. That's what you look for. For Nick Nolte, that's as real as it gets. Okay. Can you try that? Next. Tooting his own horn. That's it. A young man from the other side of the world is tooting his own horn these days with some help from an expert tutor. With Steve Hartman, let's listen in. The Philadelphia Orchestra boasts one of the best classical trumpet players in the country. And although David Bilger has played on stage for thousands, his most impressive performance happens here, in his own basement, for an audience of one. Okay. For more than a year, David has been mentoring 17-year-old Basset Azizi. Basset lives 7,000 miles away in Kabul, Afghanistan. That's it. The kid found David on Facebook and got his attention by tooting his own horn. It started off saying, I'm the best trumpet player in Afghanistan because there are only two. 
And, it, and I was immediately taken by him. I said, okay, I got, I got to read the rest of what he has to say. What did he want? To get better. It's another reason that, that I wanted immediately to work with this kid. Can you try that? So they worked together over the internet until eventually Bassett got accepted into the prestigious Interlochen Center for the Arts High School near Traverse City, Michigan. Bassett is now the most unlikely up-and-coming trumpet player in America. Unlikely because in Afghanistan, some hardliners still think anyone playing an instrument, especially a Western one, should be punished. They don't want music, you know. Did you feel like you were risking your safety? In some point, yes. But you did it anyway? Yeah. You must love that instrument. Yes, I do. It does uh, really highlight the, the power of music in people's lives. Today, for the first time in his life, Bassett says he can carry around his trumpet in public. It is a liberation that he owes almost entirely to a man he never met. David not only mentored Bassett, but he helped raise more than $30,000 to pay for his schooling. Where would your life be without him? I don't know. Yeah, he did a lot. Last month, David flew in to meet Bassett face to face. Bassett struggled for the words, but the two he finally did come up with were more than ample. Thank you. Lastly, as for the future, Bassett says he isn't sure where all this will lead. But regardless, he says no matter what he does, he will give back. And no matter where he lives, he will not be silenced. Uh, that's good. You have that, that locks in. There was a woman sitting behind me, and she kept going, she's amazing. Still to come, Moraka. She is amazing. Whoa, 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 she's amazing. With the diva in the desert. Happy birthday, old man. Happy birthday. Happy 120th? 120 years old today. And Connor Knighton with the old man of the lake. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it All By Myself is just one of the songs that helped make her a legend. She's Celine Dion, a child of Quebec, who with her 1,000th performance last night has reached the height of success in Las Vegas, which is where our Mo Rocca caught up with her backstage. I had given up. I didn't know who to trust. Oh, it's only seconds before showtime, and yet superstar Celine Dion is in a playful mood. Well, have a good one! Woo! But make no mistake, when she steps on stage at Las Vegas's Caesars Palace Coliseum, she brings it. Yes, in the age of auto-tune, Celine Dion is the real thing. Where does my heart beat now? I can't live without, without feeling it inside. There was a woman sitting behind me, and she kept going, she's amazing, she's amazing. She sounds better than she does on the albums. <laughs> No one sounds better than they do on the albums. So that's a, a tribute to you. Yeah, she is amazing. Whoa, 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 she's amazing. Sorry. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I, I felt the energy, and that's why I love performing live so much. And there's something very nerve-wracking about it. But because it's a one-shot deal, it's, it's right. a one-take. 
it gives you something magic. It's like Tinkerbell with the fairy dust. Dion doesn't need any fairy dust. She's got talent, stamina, and some of the biggest hits of the last 20 years, including the theme song to Titanic. Her show has drawn over 4 million fans since she began playing Vegas in a theater built for her in 2003. Back then, there were doubts. But after her record-breaking 1,000th performance, she's firmly in the pantheon, alongside Vegas deities like Elvis and Sinatra. Come on, I'll bring you out a little bit. Sin City is now home to this French-Canadian widowed mother of three. Work, 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 work. <laughs> Ride to work with this 48-year-old five-time Grammy winner, okay. and you Please quickly discover she doesn't take herself too peanut seriously. Peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. And she seriously loves singing. I'm unstoppable, I'm unstoppable today. I drove all night to get to you now. That the drive is short. We gotta get out of <laughs> here. The we gotta get out of here because we're here in my dressing room. Put in my makeup on. You better believe in your heart. You better believe in yourself. Sound check with Celine is the concert before the concert. Celine Dion grew up in a working-class family in the Canadian province of Quebec. So you grew up as one of 14 siblings. Where did everyone sleep? We were three, four in the same bed. I did not have a bedroom. Up the stairs, before going in bedrooms, there was a little um, ramp, and my bed was there. So everybody who went up, they saw me, and I could wave goodbye and good night. <laughs> The youngest in a family that loved to sing, she was 12 when her mother took her to meet manager René Angelil. What do you remember from the first meeting with René when you were 12 years old? I thought he looked very beautiful. He looked great. I felt confident that this man was not treating me as a, oh, hi, little pumpkin, or hi, little sweetie, or like a little baby. Angelil, 26 years her senior, managed Dion's rise to the top. Eventually, their relationship became more than professional, and they wed in 1994 in a lavish ceremony broadcast live in Canada. They were married for 21 years before Angelil lost his battle with throat cancer this past January. Before he left, it was very, very difficult for all of us, for me, especially and my children, to see the men of my life die a little bit more every day. And when he left, it was kind of um, a relief for me that the man that I love, the only man that I kissed, the only man that, right? that I loved, yeah. But the only man you've kissed? I never kissed another man in my life. So the man of my life was my partner, and we were one. So when he stopped suffering, I said to myself, he's okay and he deserves not to suffer. Do you hope that you'll fall in love again? Not now. Mm -mm. But you're still so young. I love, 
I love, I love him. I, I'm still in love with him. And um, I have the love of my children. I have the love of my fans. I love the people that I work with. Mm-hmm. So my life is not empty of love. Right. But there's a song from Sia. I go to sleep and imagine that you're there with me. And um, I go to bed with him. And I come on stage with him. And um, so I'm still married to him. Which is why each night before Celine Dion goes on stage, for good luck, she knocks on wood right below this cast of her late husband's hand. Connor Knighton ran into quite a mystery at his latest stop on the trail. Crater Lake is the deepest lake in the entire country. The pristine water in this collapsed volcano is so unbelievably blue, it seems magical. It cast such a spell on early visitors, they named the cone in the center Wizard Island. I love the name Wizard Island. Mm-hmm. It kind of evokes a little bit of mystery. Mystery is what brought me to this national park in Southern Oregon. Specifically, a Mr. Tree. I'd come to pay my respects to the old man of the lake. It's an honor to meet you, sir. The old man of the lake was first discovered in 1896 by Joseph Diller, who was a geologist and explorer, and he described him as a spectacle curious enough to excite the imagination. (laughs) It may not look like much, but this part of a tree has been part of this park since its inception. A 30-foot-long log implausibly bobbing upright for 120 years. Never the young man, always the old man. He's always been the old man of the lake. He's like the Larry King of stumps. (laughs) (laughs) He must have been young at some point, we just don't know. (laughs) Mark McTenica is an aquatic ecologist for the park. As he monitors the water quality of Crater Lake, he also ends up monitoring the movements of the old man. That's right, this seemingly unsinkable tree gets around. You would think that the four foot above the water would act as a little sail, but sometimes he'll move all the way across the lake against the wind. It's as if he has a mind of his own. The old man can travel miles in a single day. Today, he's close to the shore. Tomorrow, he could be in the middle of the lake. In the 1930s, the government commissioned a study of his movements. In their log of the log, Rangers observed the old man move over 60 miles in less than three months. The pilot was sealed to the six-foot acrylic bubble for the In the 1980s, Mark Bactenica was part of a submarine exploration of Crater Lake. To avoid running into the old man out in the water, they tied him up on the shore. Bad idea. It wasn't long after he was tied up that a storm blew in, and the surface of the lake got too rough for us to deploy and recover the submarine. When it started to snow in August, superstition got the best of the scientists. Our senior scientists went out quietly one evening and released the old man from his bondage. And, wouldn't you know it, the weather cleared up right afterwards. As Jennifer Evans explains, it's stories like that that have helped the old man take root in the imaginations of visitors. He kind of became a bit of a a celebrity, I guess, of Crater Lake. And inquiring minds want to know, why hasn't the old man sunk? Rocks may have once weighed down the roots, waterlogging the bottom while the sun dried out the top, but Mark Bactenica isn't as concerned with the why. I think maybe some questions should remain unanswered, that maybe it's part of the human condition to believe in a little bit of mystery and the interconnectedness of all things. So as a scientist, you're okay with with maybe not knowing? I'm okay with not knowing. As the old man bobs across the water, 
Perhaps that's what he's trying to teach us with his travels. Sometimes it's fun to be stumped. To the ranks of conservative Republicans weighing in on the latest Donald Trump revelations, you can add our contributor, Ben Stein. This is a nightmare, but it's time for Donald Trump to go back to Trump Tower. Time for Mike Pence to move to the top of the ticket. Time for Marco Rubio or my favorite Lindsey Graham to move to the Veep spot. I'm not fickle. I've been a conservative in Hollywood for 40 years and it's cost me plenty. No matter. Loyalty is sacred to me. But I'm a Republican and we're supposed to represent a high moral standard. We're the party of Dwight Eisenhower and of Ronald Reagan, whose charisma was based on dignity. We're the party of George W. Bush, who made terrible mistakes, but whose fundamental decency was never in doubt. Now comes Donald Trump. He talked on a hot mic about the most lewd acts imaginable. He talked on a hot mic about grabbing women by their genitals and getting away with it because he was rich and famous. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. He now says that Bill Clinton has said much the same and worse. So what? I wouldn't want Bill Clinton to be leading the Republican Party either. I want someone clean after eight years of mess and lies and deceit. I don't want someone who talks like a dirty-minded eighth grader leading the greatest political party on earth. I disagreed with Trump on many things, but I stood up for him on TV and in print because he was a force for change and he was not afraid to be non-PC. But this latest is too much. The hour is desperately late. At this rate, Mr. Trump is leading the GOP to catastrophe, to a whipping at the hands of a radicalized Democrat party in the White House and in Congress. But if Mr. Trump can do the right thing, drop out, if the party can elevate Pence, get a great Veep candidate, all can still be saved. Donald Trump, for once, do the right thing. Take your boasts and your swindles and your dirty jokes and your jet and go back home and let our great party try to save itself and the nation. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.